Welcome to the introduction and the overview of the book of Romans. What I have here with me today is my mail from yesterday. Now, what do you do when you get the mail? I'm a sorter, so I would go through and pull out the bills and the junk mail, the advertisements, the catalogs, and the golden ticket that I always look for every time I get the mail is the letter a letter that is from someone, someone that I know that I recognize the return address. What do you do when you get a letter? Do you read it first? I do. Everything, all the rest of the mail gets set to the side and I open the letter and I read it. Do you read it all at one time? Do you share it with someone? What do you do with the letter after you read it? Well, Think back to the last letter that you received that's not related to Christmas, okay? Let's take out any Christmas card, a real legitimate letter. The last letter that I received was from Liam, my grandson. It says, from Liam to Nini, can you please come over as soon as you possibly can? That is a jam-packed letter a call to action. And you better believe if it wasn't COVID time, I would have jumped right on a plane and made my way to Colorado to see him. As it was, I called him immediately and we talked about the next time we'll get to for real hug, as Liam puts it. And then I did write him a letter as well. Well, this book that we're going to be studying, the book of Romans, is one of 66 books in our Bible. A third of the books in our Bible are letters, of which Romans is one of those letters. And it, too, is a call to action. The letters can be found, or epistles can be found, at the end of our Bibles. It's the last books of the Bibles, all the way from Romans to Revelation. Five men and one unknown author wrote them all. Peter, James, John, Jude, and of course, Paul. Paul wrote 13 letters, um, 13 books of the Bible. He wrote more books of the Bible than any other of our authors. However, volume-wise, Paul is second. And I'll go ahead and tell you first so you don't have to Google it. First would be Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, which actually makes up a third of the New Testament. Well, these 22 letters are meant to be read as such, as letters. So I encourage you to read Romans from start to finish. It will take you about an hour to do that, but it will give you a better feel for what Paul is trying to say. What is the real message? I like to do this with not my regular life application study Bible because I get sidetracked by the notes and the cross-references and the charts and the pictures. So when I sit and do this at the beginning of each of our books that we study, I use a different Bible that's only scripture. And I just sit and I read through the book. And I encourage you to do that again with Romans. You can do it more than once, but for sure, do it this week before we meet next week. Now, Paul didn't have chapters and verses. Remember that. So understand the flow. Hear his voice, his thought process, and his message. Now, these 22 letters, just like our letters, were written with an audience in mind. And Paul's audience were people that he actually never met, living in a place he had never been been. 
Romans was written to Christians. They were both Jews and Gentile Christians. And Paul did want to go to Rome, and eventually he did two different times in the latter part of his life. But his letter arrived first. Romans is not the first letter that Paul wrote. It is placed first because of its length and because of its foundational content. Romans is so foundational that one source said, Romans is the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Emancipation Proclamation in one document. One could argue that if the rest of the New Testament were done away with, every great truth of Christian belief could be drawn from Romans. The subtitle to our study is Good News That Changes Everything. Tim Keller wrote a book, Romans for You, and his opening line in his book is, The Letter to the Romans is a book that repeatedly changes the world by changing people. This book that we will be studying is directly linked to changes in Augustine of Hippo, for example. He lived in the 4th century. He had a Christian mother, but he turned away from faith, deciding to live as he pleased, and he fathered a child out of wedlock. While living in Milan, he heard a message from Bishop Ambrose, and he kept thinking about the message. This is what he said. The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chain. Suddenly, I heard a voice from the nearby house changing as if it might be a boy or a girl. Pick up and read. Pick up and read. I took up the book of the apostle, Romans, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eye lit. Not in riots of drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lust. That's Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Well, Augustine did become the bishop of Hippo, and God used the book of Romans to bring to faith the man who may very well have been the greatest influence from the time of Paul until a millennium later when Luther came to be. And as for Luther, the German monk, he had been taught that his salvation was a result of his living a righteous life as required by God, and this moved him to actually hate God, for requiring of him what he could not do and then leaving him to fail. Then Luther read and finally understood Romans 1, 17. This is our scripture memory verse for these first two weeks. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Here's what Luther had to say. I labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's word. The expression, the righteousness of God, blocked the way. Because I took it to mean that righteousness, whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Then 
I grasp that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. I broke through. And as I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my dearest and most comforting word. Luther studied Romans, and he understood the truth that salvation was by faith alone, solely on the merit of Christ's death on the cross. On October 31st, 1517, this Augustinian monk and teacher of biblical studies at the University of Wittenberg nailed a sheet of paper onto the church door, his 95 Theses. His new understanding of Romans 1 led to the gospel being spread throughout Germany and on throughout all of Europe. Martin Luther's teachings later became the founding doctrines of the Lutheran Church, and his stand would lead to the Protestant Reformation and the establishment of all main branches of the Protestant faith. What a great revolution, literally the remapping of church history was started by one man's study of the book of Romans. And one of the greatest theologians and pastors of the Protestant Reformation is John Calvin, the Frenchman. Calvin spoke of Romans as his, quote, entrance to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. The subject then of these chapters may be stated thus. Man's only righteousness is through the mercy of God in Christ, which being offered by the gospel is apprehended by faith. Both Luther and Calvin learned and used much of Augustinian's writings. And John Wesley, on May 24, 1738, he was a discouraged and despondent missionary. Coming back home for a season, he attended a religious gathering, and he says in his own words, very unwillingly. He was in London. Just a few months previously, he had written in his journal, quote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Ah, God was up to a miraculous work in Wesley's life. This is what he says. About a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That's from Wesley's journal concerning that May 24th meeting in London. Well, what was said at the May 24th meeting that produced such a change in him? It was actually the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. Wesley's personal revival engulfed England and transformed America. Special delivery change. Why is Romans such an instrument of change? The central message of Romans is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the best news ever. Paul knew that this was the message that the church of Rome needed to hear, the Jewish and Gentile Christians, the gospel message. Practically speaking, how did the letter get there? And what did they do with it? And how did it get in our Bible for us today? Well, it's believed by most scholars that Paul wrote the letter about A.D. 57 or 58 on his third missionary journey, probably from Corinth in Greece. Phoebe was a deacon of the church, and 
might have been the one to deliver the letter. She's mentioned in chapter 16, 1 and 2. So the church in Rome would have received Paul's letter. Now, how did the church in Rome even get started? Our author actually gives us a few lines on that. It's on page 16 of your study guide. But here's the rest of the story. The church in Rome is very unique in that it was not planted by Paul or Peter or any of the other apostles. In Acts 2, remember the day of Pentecost, seven weeks after Jesus' resurrection? That's when the Holy Spirit comes. Acts 2, 5 through 7 says, At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. Acts 2 goes on to describe what happened. There was a loud noise and everyone comes running and they're bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken. And they're completely amazed. And verse 8 begins listing where all the other people are from. Skip to verse 10. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome. The listeners were amazed and perplexed and asked, what can this mean? Well, here's Peter and the 11 other apostles right there, and Peter preaches a sermon to them, and he makes the message very clear about exactly who Jesus is. The people were convicted and asked, what should we do? This is, every, this is the question that every teacher dreams for. It's the so what, now what? Peter answers in Acts 2, starting in verse 38, and he tells them to repent, to turn to God, to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and then they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Moving on to verse 41, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. So most likely, it is believed that those visitors from Jerusalem who were there at Pentecost took the good news back to their homes in Rome. Or possibly it was Pauline converts from other churches formed the nucleus of the Christian body there in Rome like, for example, Priscilla and Aquila, Romans 16, Acts 18, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Timothy 4, all talk about this couple who they also could have been involved in the start. What we do know for sure is that the Roman church holds the distinction of being the only recipient of a letter from Paul that had not been founded by him on one of his missionary journeys. Rome, all roads lead to Rome. The saying actually came much later in the 17th century, but it was definitely true in Paul's day. At the time of Paul's letter, Rome was the most significant city in the civilized world. It was the seat of the dominant world power. The Roman Empire stretched across most of Europe and the Middle East, and the Caesars ruled just about every part of the known world. The Romans believed military power made them right. Rome was a melting pot of cultures and ideas. Emperor worship was an official religion, but they also had many other specific deities. Geographically, Rome sat in the middle of Italy of the boot. At the time of Christ, Rome boasted the largest arena in the world, the Circus Maximum. Rome was a wealthy city and populated by about a million people. Think about believers, Christ followers, back in the day in Rome. What were their challenges? Well, Rome valued and promoted religious plurality. The Christians there held to an exclusive belief system and probably would have seemed pretty intolerant. 
Rome was a city of rampant immorality where sex was glorified. This presented quite a moral challenge for the Christians of remaining pure and true to the Lord. Rome was a prosperous and wealthy metropolis, and there would have been the pull of materialism. Hmm. Do any of those challenges sound familiar? Monotheism versus religious plurality, moral purity in an immoral world, the pull of materialism in a prosperous, wealthy metropolis. I'm thinking we might have some similarities, commonalities with some of their challenges. It was to Rome, the most celebrated city in the world, that Paul sends his letter. So the letter arrives in Rome. It would have been read aloud and discussed. Then it would have been copied and distributed among other churches, circulated around. Well, how did it get in our Bibles today? I must omit this section for time, but I'm so grateful Romans is God's word. How does Romans fit in with the rest of the Bible, the New Testament specifically? In the New Testament, we have the four Gospels, and then we have a history book, the book of Acts, the story of the early church. And right after, which by the way, includes Paul's missionary journeys on which one of those journeys he wrote the book of Romans. And then we have Romans that begins all of the letters. The Gospels this talk about the significance of who Jesus is. And then the letters tell us how then we are to live. In the book of Romans, Paul systematically explains what it means to be a Christian, a Christ follower. Because much of his audience is Jewish, Paul quotes more from the Old Testament in the book of Romans than he does in all of his other letters combined. His audience, though, is also Gentile believers. So he makes sure that it is clear that all of us come to Jesus in the very same way. We come to God through level ground of the cross, through faith in Jesus Christ. The authorship, well, the first verse of Romans tells us clearly that Paul wrote the book and dictated it to his scribe. Paul was born around AD 2. Growing up, he was a student of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was an outstanding rabbi in Jewish history. This was Paul's teacher. This is who Paul followed. Paul met Christ around AD 35, and he ministered throughout much of the Roman Empire until his martyrdom in AD 68 or 69. The first time we meet Saul, later to be named Paul, is in Acts 7.58. He was actually the coat checker at Stephen's stoning. In Acts 8 and 9, you can read about Paul's initial mission. He was out to devastate the church through the persecution and imprisonment of the Christ followers. All through the proper channels and with authority, by the way. How could this be? How could this be happening? Well, according to rabbinical teachings of the day, many devout Jews believed the Messiah would not come if Israel's people were not pure. And this sect of people, these Christ followers, were seen as a stain on Israel and they needed to be purged. So Saul is tracking down Christians with actual letters of authority from the high priest himself on the way to D Damascus. And then everything changes for Saul Paul. If you'd like to read how Paul meets Jesus, read Acts 9. One summary verse from Acts 9. And this is actually God's description of Saul. 
Acts 9.15, Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. In Acts 13 verse 9, you can read where Saul becomes Paul. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's really just the Greek equivalent of his name. And it's believed that it was changed because it was easier for the Gentiles to accept. Although Paul wrote the letter to the church in Rome without having been to Rome, without having met the Christians yet, he finally did arrive in Rome in A.D. 60 for the first time. He didn't come as a missionary traveler as he had hoped. He came as a prisoner. He stayed two years under house arrest. And during that time, Paul wrote his letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and to Philemon. He came back to Rome a second time again as a prisoner in A.D. 67. He died in Rome. He was put to death for his faith as part of the great persecution under the Emperor Nero. The elevator speech regarding Paul. Paul was a sincere, religious, intelligent Pharisee who zealously and mercilessly persecuted Christians until he met Jesus. And the rest of his life was devoted to spreading the good news of salvation through faith in his Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, a summary of the book of Romans. What is Romans all about? Is there an elevator speech regarding Romans? Well, the key verse is not even agreed upon. Our author in our study states Romans 1, 16 and 17 as a key verse. And again, you've studied that this week and will again next week. The Life Application Bible states Romans 5.1 as the key verse. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Another commentary said there are actually 12 key verses from eight passages in Romans. Now, you'll recognize several of these up on your screen. The Romans 1.16, that's the one that our, one of the two that our author says is a key verse. The Romans 2.28 passage talks about the circumcision of our heart. Romans 3, 23 and 24 are probably familiar to you that all have sinned and were justified freely by his grace. Romans 3, 28, justified by faith. Romans 6, 23, again probably familiar and one of the best buts in the Bible. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8, 28, another familiar one, a placable one, talks about how God works for the good. Romans 12, 1 and 2, that scripture talks about offering our body as a living sacrifice. And the last one, Romans 13, 1 and 2, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Well, we can't talk about a summary of Romans without talking about the Roman road. Many of you might have memorized this in your early growing up Christian days. There are five verses, some say six verses, all from Romans to help share the gospel, the good news. The gospel, all from one book, five to six verses. Romans 3.23 is the first one. We already talked about that, as well as Romans 6.23. Romans 5.8 talks about how God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We'll be talking about this verse in a lecture that's coming up in the future. Romans 10.9 tells us that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised Christ from the dead, we will be saved. And then the last one, Romans 10, 13, assures us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Might I add that it's not too late to memorize these verses as long as your heart's still beating, you're still breathing. At the least, write the references at the beginning of Romans. I remember my discipleship leader when I was in high school encouraged me to take my Bible and write in the very beginning of Romans, Romans 3.23, and then turn to Romans 3.23 and write Romans 6.23, and then go to 6.23 and write Romans 5.8, etc. I actually did that again when I got my Bible that I currently use back in 2000. It's just a habit of mine now. Well, we could also summarize the book of Romans uh, in an elevator speech fashion by looking at the key words that are in the book. Our author lists some of these on pages 20 and 21 of our study guide. And here are a few more big words and I've added to each one of them the scripture passages in Romans that define these for us. So justification, 324 and 51. Righteousness, 321 and 22. Redemption, 324. Atonement, 325. Reconciliation, 510. Salvation, 59. We could also outline the book of Romans. Might I suggest watching the Bible Project's video on the book of Romans? It's 12 minutes and 23 seconds, or I, I would have shown it to you today, but that's almost half of our lecture time together. Here is a picture of the summation of it. You can see it is packed with so much helpful information. And you can watch it again and again and again. Soak in Romans. We could also do a brief outline of the book. Here's one outline. The introduction, humanity's problem, God's solution, God's honesty, and on to Christian accountability. An even briefer outline would be what to believe from Romans 1 to 11 and how to behave, Romans 12, to the end of the book. However we want to summarize it or classify the book of Romans, it is life-changing. In Tim Keller's book on Romans, he too picks up on the subtitle of our, uh, of our study, Good News That Changes Everything. Here's what Keller says. The perfection and holiness of God has been seen in the life and death of Jesus Christ and that this perfection is offered to us as a free gift through the life and death of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel message of Romans. And as we will see, Paul shows us not only how God in the gospel makes sinners righteous, but also how this most precious gift of God is enjoyed in our lives, how it produces deep and massive changes in our behavior and even in our character. Reading and reflecting on this letter today, we should be prepared to have our hearts shaped and our lives changed by God's gift of righteousness. So perhaps it's not good news that changes everything, but rather the best news that changes everyone who believes. So we too can join Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and Wesley and be changed by God's word in the book of Romans as we come to know our righteous, holy God and his great love for us. I, I always have fun with these studies as I read them. There's normally something that I'll question and I put a, put a big red question mark in the margin and I'll look it up in scripture and and do further study on it. And in this one, I marked up the front of my book. So I put a big X through the subtitle and I changed it to the best. 
I kept the word news. I kept the word that changes. I crossed out everything and I put everyone who believes and then I asterisked it and I put my name in red, Rhonda. This is my prayer. Pray with me. This is our prayer, Father. Change us through the gifts of your word and your spirit as we come to know you more through our time together in Romans. We look forward to seeing what you will accomplish, how you will change us from January to May and beyond. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, ladies.